This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, East Sanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hszc.org. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and today we're going to talk a little bit about right livelihood. I've been thinking about it a lot um, in general and also during this COVID um, situation. So two years ago, I was a professor at a local university. I had a thriving private practice as a therapist. I was an organizer and health justice advocate and as Zen priest with multiple opportunities to be of service to the community. I worried that maybe I was moving too fast um, and not making a wholehearted contribution to any of those things. I studied and discussed um, the Noble Eightfold Path with teachers and with Kalyan Amita, with friends, and any passerby who would offer me some, some guidance. Um, I was really concerned about right livelihood particularly. So the next year I retired, taught only one class, trimmed my private practice, reduced my service commitments in Buddhism and recovery, um, and started walking on the beach. Um, and then I began to worry again about the noble path and right livelihood. I think I was too young and too healthy to be doing nothing, I thought. Nothing, at least in the way my mind was describing it. So my relationship to work continued to, to evolve. Some days I was confident that I had right view, which for me I describe as to live simply and be of service. I was mostly operating with right intention to live and be lived for the benefit of others. I was trying um, to make sure that, that my view was becoming operationalized, right action to actually do something about those views and intentions, um, and then right livelihood. Um, I thought, you know, I don't manufacture arms or booze, so whatever I do um, must be right livelihood. But there are other days when I continued to worry um, and to arouse mindful awareness and to seek guidance from others. I wanted my work to be relevant to my spiritual practice, not in addition to it, parallel to it, or something extra. And here's what I discovered. Right livelihood is not what job I have or what career I put together. Sure, those things are important. Um, right livelihood includes those, but it's really simpler and more encompassing than that. In his book, <clears throat> Steps to Liberation, Gil Fronsdale um, says that summa ajiva, um, often translated as right livelihood, can also be interpreted differently. Ajiva, translated as work, um, can also be translated as the way one lives. So um, this factor of the noble path encompasses more than just what I do from nine to five or what I do for a paycheck. It can include such lifestyle choices, <clears throat> excuse me, as what I buy, what I consume, am I currently hoarding um, food or paper goods, um, how I live, what kind of roommate I am if I have a roommate, um, how do I care for shared spaces in my home, my apartment, and my building? Um, it can include what do I rely on or who do I rely on for financial support? Um, and how we care for our family, parent, partner, or how we live in retirement. So those are a lot of questions that I had regarding right livelihood. And it seems to me from what I've been studying and reading that it comes down to these questions. Right livelihood is whether or not the way we live, the way I live, moves me towards compassion, peace, and freedom. Does the way we live nourish us or deplete us? Does the way we live support the development of ease and insight in our lives? Does the way we live help us to become better, happier people? And finally, as bodhisattvas, uh, does the way we live benefit others? So the ancient teaching tell, tell us that the things that we do repeatedly have greater consequences, cause and effect, or karma. 
Um, if we do it every day, then we're generating more karma. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh refers to this as planting karmic seeds. So for most of us, if our work life is eight hours a day, um, 48 or 50 weeks a year, then there's plenty of seeds that we're planting. Um, seeds of right livelihood or seeds of frustration and anger. Seeds of showing up or seeds of being lazy, distracted, and not engaged on a certain day. Seeds of being of service to others and seeds of tolerating on some days the lazy, incompetent folks with whom we work. So it's logical to think about what we uh, do for our jobs, um, but it's equally important if we spend a third of our time there to think about how we, how we are living within the job. You know, making judgments about people being lazy or incompetent when we know if we took a breath, that judgment really has to do with my um, peace of mind today and my um, being on the path. So very simply, is the way we live supporting our walk on the Buddhist path? Are we doing good? Are we avoiding harm and evil? And are we living for the benefit of all others? So as I think about work, I want to nest that into the larger picture of how I, how I lead my life or how you lead yours. So cultivating mindfulness at work, um, you know, it's, it's an important thing because surely we all have days when we're eager to go to work, when we are focused and inspired, we're motivating and supportive of our colleagues. I heard this put this way, awakening on the job is learning to drop my resistance and to intelligently and energetically alert, uh, be alert to the fact that the way I live on this job is my path. You know, I don't get to have a path when I'm on the Zafu and another path when I'm at work. This is my path. In his book, Awake at Work, Michael Carroll says it this way, um, right livelihood means learning to live our lives nobly and without fear, coming down to earth and into direct contact with our experience. This requires effort and discipline. That all sounds aspirational, and indeed I do have the intention to be awake in the world, to be of service, and to be kind. And I know that all of you do too. We must take that with us as we go to work, as well as when we're with our families, in our sanghas, in our volunteer work, and importantly, um, in play and leisure. So the Buddhist teachings, which many of you have heard me talk about before, and that I really um, resonate with, is the one that talks about <clears throat> dwelling happily <clears throat> with things as they are. And, and that's really important. Um, you know, it's an aspiration to dwell happily when things as they are, whatever comes up. But you know, some days a job can be boring and uninspiring. Let's face it, um, no matter how good the job is, that everybody has those days. For every creative project that we get to work on, for every um, thing that we're really looking forward to, there's some report or some budget that has to be crafted. It's on a deadline. Um, the deadline was set arbitrarily. And by that point, I'm often thinking that whoever set that deadline um, is way less skilled, <coughs> skilled than I am. <clears throat> and I'm not sure um, why, why they're making the deadlines. So it's the opportunity then to, um, to think about where's my compassion, where's my focus, um, where's, how is it that I want to live my life? So some days on the job are sunny Mondays, um, and some days on the job are those deadline, deadline day Saturdays where we're still working even when we don't want to be. Work, our jobs, and therefore our Buddhist practice um, offer us opportunities. You know, because we believe in non-duality, we believe that the person next to us, um, next to me at the job, or the person I'm working on a project with, um, is not the great support and wonderful colleague um, uh, that I experience one day, and a totally rude person the next day. 
they're human beings trying to survive, trying to do their best, um, and, and trying to thrive in the job and in their lives. In fact, as I was thinking about this, I looked up the word rude, comes from rudis um, in Old French and is translates as broken. So we all have days when we're really um, fully engaged and days when we're broken due to um, health or uh, emotional or spiritual challenges that we're facing, family challenges, whatever it might be. So if I think of it as the person is both the best colleague I ever had and the most innovative and supportive partner I've ever had and um, a person who's suffering and that some days that suffering um, causes their presentation, their engagement in life to be out of balance. Um, and I know that the same is true for me. Then I get a chance to bring compassion to the workplace. So um, there are times when we really like the people at our jobs who are heart driven um, and for whom this work is a passion project. They put whatever it takes into it. They work long hours if they need to. Um, they are enthusiastic um, um, folks in terms of getting everybody else to do the part of the work that they need to, that they need to get done. And, and they sort of ride people in sometimes nice and sometimes harsh ways. Um, and you know, that's wonderful. And those are the people that we like working with on projects mostly. Um, but there are other times, as I say, when our lights are a little dimmed, um, stuff outside, people outside um, are, require, um, require us to operate at work with a little less uh, enthusiasm and focus. Um, and I've had those days um, when the passion-driven, heart-driven heart people um, can, instead of being the ideal colleague um, and the project leader, um, can become just annoying um, and, and really depleting my motivation rather than adding to it. But Right Livelihood allows me to remember that um, they are both of those people and to accept that um, the change in engagement um, has to do with what's going on in their lives, perhaps, um, and what's going on in mine. Um, do I welcome their riding me to get to the finish line um, on some days? And um, do I resent it on other days? And both of those are, are things exactly as they are. So a lot of that stuff is just out of our control. Getting really angry or shutting down with that colleague might feel like a good thing, might be a kind of release, letting some of that anger out um, uh, could be a release. Um, and then there's the longer term. So it feels good for a minute, but is, is it right livelihood? Is it the way of compassion and wisdom? Um, when I think about it um, and when I arouse right view, the, my idea to be live simply and be of service to folks, um, is that really the person that I want to be? We're not trapped in our lives, but we're free to live them. So if I arouse calm abiding, if I arouse harmony, if I live by choice, chances are that I will experience um, dignified composure and equanimity as, as it's taught to us. Um, so, so we have this opportunity um, to train ourselves. Um, and one of the ways that we do that, of course, is through Zazen. As Buddhists, we practice Zazen um, and we learn and practice stability. Um, the very active Zazen in our practice um, is an expression of our humanness and our loving kindness. We sit Zazen alone um, or in a Zendo with others. Um, but the fact is, it is an opportunity to express loving kindness. We do it um, not to gain anything for ourselves, but because um, the practice um, allows us to live in the present moment um, and to generate less chaos in the world. In Pali, the word for equanimity is upeka, and it's one of the four sublime attitudes or what we call the Brahma Viharas. Um, and these are um, 
allow us to be dignified and, and essentially human. Um, so the Brahma Viharas are these four states of being um, and four systematic meditation practices that cultivate those states of being. And it is those states of being that allow us to have a full and robust practice. So the four are metta, which we know of as loving kindness, um, can also be thought of as unconditional love or goodwill. And this goodwill is the concern for others um, that we have and the, the very goodwill that led the Buddha to leave the palace and to go out into the world um, to help all other beings um, to live for the benefit of others. The second one is karuna, which is compassion. And the interesting thing about this is this is what happens when goodwill meets suffering. So we don't pretend like there's not difficulties in our lives or the lives of others. Um, we don't pretend that some people are easier or less easy to deal with. Um, we accept those difficulties and the differences um, and we live in harmony with those. We have compassion for folks. Um, um, and we don't even spend time judging why they might be behaving that way. We just say uh, something else could be possible. The third of the Brahma Viharas is mudita or appreciative joy, sympathetic joy. Um, and this is a sort of a calm alertness. And this is when goodwill meets happiness. We can be happy for the good things that are happening in other people's lives. And we don't have to hold back a little bit because I resent that I don't have it. Um, when I go for walks in my neighborhood, I go up to St. Francis Woods, which is a few blocks away, and there are huge homes sitting on hills with a view down to the ocean. Um, and at first I was a little resentful, like, why did they get to have those homes? And I'm sheltering in place in a small one-bedroom apartment. Um, and then I was able to just look at the architecture and look at the views that they had and be really happy that somebody gets to live up there. Um, and as, of course, just to help myself with that, I realized that if I had that great big huge house, somebody has to clean it. So we get to our goodwill um, in a variety of ways. And the fourth of the um, Brahma Viharas is equanimity. And one of the ways that I've heard this described is this, it's, it's the availability to others. It's if I am balanced in my own life um, between the various things that are things as such as things as they are, suchness, um, that I can be more available to others because I'm not so focused on me. Um, Tanisaro Biku, an American-born Thai forest monk, um, described equanimity this way. When you encounter suffering that you can't stop, no matter how hard you try, you need equanimity to avoid creating additional suffering and to channel your energies into areas where you can actually help. He says that in this way, equanimity isn't cold-hearted or indifferent. It simply makes your goodwill more focused and more effective. So when I think about that, I think about the times in life um, when I've tried to fix something. Um, in a workplace, I've come up with a great idea for how to change the way we do business uh, or do our practice. Um, or I'm in a sangha and I come up with a great idea for how to increase access or to, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and, and it just didn't get things fixed. And there can be a number of reasons for that in these teachings. Um, the teaching of equanimity, the teaching of being truly um, available to others. Um, maybe it didn't get fixed because I was solving a problem that didn't actually exist, that was just in my mind. Um, and maybe it didn't get fixed because it was of so little consequence to anybody else um, that they weren't focused on that or, or paying attention to that. And maybe um, I, like Don Quixote, was on my own journey of enchantment and imagination. And I, like Don Quixote, discovered that my journey was actually a journey of solution. So Bhikkhu um, says that once we know these sublime states, 
um, we engage in them and we conduct our, our lives in them um, in order to encourage and support our Buddhist practice. Um, and in Thai, in the Thai um, tradition, um, they talk about it as that practicing and engaging in the four Brahma Viharas causes the practitioner to be reborn into the Brahma realm. And this is a realm of great contentment uh, where wholesome engagement is always available. So there's that word again, available, that if we are practicing um, the four Brahma Viharas, um, that we have this opportunity um, to have uh, practice available to us. So we can practice as Buddhists in a much more compassionate way um, uh, if we are living in these sublime states. So one of the things I read was that the Brahma Viharas are also known as the four immeasurables. Um, and the Dalai Lama uses that expression um, when he teaches that the amount of satisfaction we can attain um, from each of those uh, sublime states um, is directly in proportion to the amount that we apply ourselves to them, to the amount that we're willing to pay attention, to be present, and to actually um, do the work. So if we arouse goodwill, work with it, um, when we experience happiness and or suffering and frustration, and if we can reside in equanimity, <clears throat> experiencing balance with others within our job sites and the community and our families and the planet, then we're indeed walking the path of practice. And these sublime states cause us to be less um, chaotic, um, less um, agitated, less, um, uh, the less capacity for focusing on me rather than all of us. Um, and so I am in fact living with joy um, and loving kindness and, and availability to others. You know, so if we know this and we've all been practicing for a while and we know that the world is in a tender, needy place right now, um, what gets in our way? Well, you know, we're often too busy. Um, that's one of the problems. People say, well, I would practice today. I would sit and meditate, but I'm too busy. Um, I would take a few moments to pause and deeply think about what I just heard um, when, I, when I thought somebody insulted me um, and I responded immediately rather than take a few minutes to think about what did they really say? Did they say what I heard? Um, am I interpreting it correctly? Um, but I'm too busy. And so I think that's one of the curses of the lives we lead um, is this business of being so busy that we don't have time to um, pay attention to right livelihood, to the way we live our lives. And so um, goodwill and compassion in those cases take second place um, to our right view, the intentions, the actions, and, and the way we lead our lives. So that being busy thing becomes uh, an important issue to consider. Um, Darlene Cohen, a wonderful teacher who died nine years ago this year, um, after a lifetime of teaching at San Francisco Zen Center and other places, wrote a wonderful book called The One Who Is Not Busy. And this book really speaks to me because she says that is learning to be simultaneously busy and not busy um, that allows us to experience work in the rest of our lives the way we live. She uses that expression um, in, a deeply, in a deeply joyful and sustaining way. Indeed, right livelihood, right? So it's knowing that we are busy and not busy, um, that we have, we have the capacity, we have the reality of both of those things in our life um, and that in the sense of non-duality, they're always there. So in her teaching, um, Darlene says that a worker, that I or you, um, could be busy and not busy at the same time. She refers to that as simultaneous inclusion. Um, equanimity, equanimity, of course, helps us to realize um, that both exist um, and that we have the choice to find a way to balance, to live in balance, to take right action, um, and to engage in our work and with our colleagues, in our family life and with our family members, 
um, in our Sangha and with our Sangha members in a way that is balanced. I'm not too busy to slow down and, and be fully present and aware of what your needs are today. Um, I'm not so busy that I need to quickly and sharply um, rebuke something that you just said or, or chastise you for it. Um, I, I, am, I am busy, um, but I'm not that busy. Um, and so I can, I can sit in calmness. I can arouse calm abiding um, and uh, find that balance and harmony that is um, the Buddha's way. So Darlene said that um, we tend to live lives dominated by personal opinion, by our personal beliefs, and we're often responding to something in that way. Um, and that, that's sort of a reactive response based on what I think or what I believe to be the truth. And she says it's actually easier to live that way. It takes less effort to simply react, um, to have a reactive response, than to attend to our inevitably complex, confusing, immediate experience. Of course, the downside of that, she teaches us, um, is that reactive response, in fact, um, limits our enjoyment, limits our encounters, limits our ability to be fully present and wholehearted. Um, and that these reactions uh, are exactly the way that we separate ourselves from the actual experience that our practice is, is um, leading us towards. So Dogen said that realization is effort without desire. We're most, um, we are happiest um, giving something or everything our full attention without concern for the outcome. This is insight into the nature of the human heart, Dogen says. Darlene expounded on that by saying that this attitude can be seen um, when we do things in our life that are creative. That's a real opportunity to see it. If we're painting or if we're writing or writing some poetry, if we're dancing, if we're doing some sewing, if we're baking something, making a meal for folks um, or even for ourselves. Um, when we put our total focus, you know, when chopping carrots, just chop carrots, but we put our total focus on what we're doing and we allow it to be an expression, that thing that we're sewing or the song that we're singing or um, the poetry that we're writing, really recognize and allow it to be an expression of our true selves. Um, that uh, deep commitment that we have in that focus at that time on that one thing um, that we are really allowing um, self-expression and allowing ourselves to get in touch with that capacity for self-expression. Um, and in the practice of right livelihood, the way we live, um, we can bring this commitment, focus, and expression um, to whatever it is we're engaged with. So I want to read you just one little short section from Darlene's book, and this is the book um, entitled The One Who Is Not Busy. And she says, with this attitude, any work or job we do is meaningful. We are our activity itself, cultivating the doing of work for its own sake, totally immersed in the feelings and sensation of physical movement, creative thought, supporting the flow of life. By giving our daily movements our full attention, our mind has the chance to unfold, revealing psychic space around pain in which we can find relief, not because the pain has stopped, but because we are able to focus on the gap between the pulsations of pain, the space around mundane chores, the space around everything. This kind of space is always there for us and it's available for us to receive. The one who is not busy is always aware, aware of our muscle working, aware of the breezes on our cheek. To give every activity and every person our wholehearted attention poses a radical shift in our self-reward system. So Delaine in that book and, and what I've been working with and hope that you'll think about today and, and, um, and really contemplate is that the way we work 
a third of our day, basically, um, for, for some and less for others. Um, the way we work is also the way we live. The way we live is the way we practice. Um, and so when we show up as our true selves and have full self-expression by focusing entirely on what we're doing, um, I think it gives us this opportunity. So um, during these days, when we're home alone, um, we have a choice to be prisoners, locked in our homes, and locked in our apartments, and forced to stay away from other people, or we have an uh, opportunity to be sheltered in grace. Um, not sheltered in space, sheltered in grace. Living with acceptance and gratitude. This is my life for the next four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. I can fight it, resist it, I can rebel against it, um, and I can do that in ways like not paying full attention to my work, um, taking an opportunity to uh, slack off. I can do it by becoming so intensely focused on my work um, that I am unpleasant for other people to be working with, um, and I can be an annoyance to my colleagues. Um, I can do it by practicing exceptionalism. Well, everyone should stay in their home, and everyone should um, only go to the grocery store once every two weeks, and et cetera, et cetera, all, all the guidances that we've been given. Um, wear a face mask when I go outside. And I can decide that, well, that's good for everybody else, but just this once, I'm just running up to the post office or to Walgreens, and so I don't have to do that. Um, so I take a long um, uh, look at the way life is during Shelter and Grace, um, the way my life is when I'm at work, and I realize that that is my life. Both of those things are my life. But the way I relate to you, the way we relate to each other, that's my life. Um, and so my hope for all of us is that we can use this smaller container that we're finding ourselves in for the next few weeks um, to arouse mindful awareness, um, to experience the gifts um, that we have in our life, the ways that we can connect with each other, not think of it as social distancing, although that's important and I absolutely recommend it, but to think of it in terms of connection, connections across space, connections across media, connections from heart to heart. Um, and that if we do that, um, our practice is not just on the Zafu, um, our practice is not just in, in the place in which we're sheltered, um, but our practice is universal and connects us all. On our call today, we have folks from Spain and Germany and France um, and Washington, D.C. and Austin, Texas and all around the Bay Area. And so we have this opportunity to be connected, to be connected in the pursuit of the Buddhist path, to be connected in a life um, that is, is really exceptional. Um, and I'll just close with a, um, a regular a, a verse that I've been practicing with lately. And it says this, with each in-breath, I think welcome, and with each out-breath, I think thank you. And that leaves me between acceptance and gratitude, living between acceptance and gratitude. And, you know, life as it is, um, things as they are, um, and my commitment to right livelihood, to live my life um, and to support you in living yours in ways that truly um, nourish us and deepen our practice. Um, that's what's possible, I think, during these times. So that's all I have to say. And we'll now open it for questions or comments or thoughts um, that you might have. Um, and uh, thank you.